Our sermon reading for tonight says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. <clears throat> he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food, the likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Well, good evening again, and welcome to Epiphany. In case I haven't met you before, my name's Eric, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, we're a fairly new church plant in the area. We've been in existence for a little over a year, and... Um, Looking forward to sharing with you the Word of God tonight. Uh, we're looking at, as you may have been able to pick up from the text we read, John the Baptist tonight, because we are in the season of Advent, and no one was sent to do more preparing people to meet Jesus than John the Baptist throughout the history of the church. So, so before I get into that, why don't we bow for a word of prayer to get ready to ask God to speak through my imperfect lips, and then we'll dig in. Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to once again have our hearts prepared. And I say it that way because we need you to come and do it. We, we need you to do the preparing. Because when we try to do the preparing, we end up oftentimes making it worse. It's almost like we can't help it. We're, we're like children that just don't know any better, except, <laughs> except we, 
we should know better. Uh, so, so, Father, I ask that you'd come and speak through my lips tonight to your people that you've gathered here at Epiphany. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, lately, I have been thinking about what it means to be prepared, uh, partly because I've been listening to a new podcast that was just released called, uh, called Headlong. If you haven't listened to it, it's fairly interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting anyway. Uh, it's about how different people tried to get ready uh, for the year 2000, for the, the turning of the millennium. Uh, basically, in the years and months leading up to the year 2000, there was, well, there was a bit of a scare. And some of you uh, probably weren't alive. Most of you in this room may not have been alive or been old enough to recognize it when it was happening. But the scare was known as Y2K. And there was, it had all, I can't even begin to explain it to you, but it was a bug in computer systems. And the fear was that when we hit the year 2000, that these computer systems wouldn't be prepared. And some of these computer systems could be connect, connected to major issues, major areas in our country that wouldn't function anymore if they went down. And so there was this kind of hysteria surrounding the date as we got closer to it in some circles. And the church was uh, no exception to that. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars were spent by corporations. Uh, billions of dollars were spent by government. I don't know how much to try and fix it. Many people stocked up on food and ammunition in case the day brought with it the beginning of the apocalypse, the end. Some sold all they had and some used it as an occasion to change their lives in dramatic ways. And this podcast is basically all about that. It's just it's, it's this sort of documentary about that. And as I thought about what it means to be prepared for the coming of Jesus, both his first coming when we look back at it and his second coming, which literally could happen like now, um, there's nobody better to look at than John, this strange, prophetic, weirdo preacher who is calling out to people to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. So how does he do it? How does, how does God prepare us for is coming? That's the question. And I think the first thing we see in the text that was, was just read by Cat is that he actually meets us where we live. He meets us where we actually are. Some people would have you believe that what we're celebrating this time of year, the incarnation or the coming of God into human flesh, um, is basically a fairy tale, you know, ranked up there in the same place as the tooth fairy or the, the Easter bunny or the boogeyman. Um, and of course, nothing could be further from the truth. And one of the reasons we say that isn't just because it's like, but I want it to be true. But no, it's because of the detail of the Gospels reporting about Jesus. For example, in the beginning of our passage, Luke gives us some fairly mundane, boring details. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, of Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, Trachonitis. By the way, good job, Cat, on reading all those words. And I'll go, I could go on and on with the names, but you get it. He mentions all these different names, and then the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, and then the days of John, the son of Zechariah. Why does he do all that? 
Why mention all these names in these very specific places? Well, it's because Luke, the writer of this gospel, wants you to know that God came into real space and time. He didn't go to Narnia. He didn't go to a made-up land. He didn't go to Middle Earth. He came to Earth, to Palestine, was born in a place called Bethlehem that we can go to today. Some of you have been there. So to save us, to make us ready for his coming, for his advent, to give us a new day, Jesus does not wait for us to come to him. He doesn't wait for us to climb up the ladder, to clean ourselves up. Rather, he comes right into the world of corrupt government and religious officials like so many of the names mentioned above. These Most of them were not good dudes. They weren't people that you look up to, but they were much like any leaders at any time. They were a mixed bag. The point Luke wants to make is that God, when he prepares you, doesn't wait for you to come, but comes to you. And he's still doing it today. He does it now. He doesn't wait for you, but comes into your wildernesses and into your deserts, into your messiness, into your unbelief, into your skepticism. He still comes. Helmut a German pastor and theologian during World War II, has one of my favorite quotes. I've no doubt mentioned it to you before. If you've ever heard me preach, you've probably heard me quote this. But I unashamedly quote it every year, especially around this time, because I think it hits the nail on the head as to what exactly we're talking about when we talk about God coming in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He says, quote, Jesus Christ did not remain at base headquarters in heaven, receiving reports of the world's suffering from below and shouting a few encouraging words to us from a safe distance. No, he left the headquarters and came down to us in the front line trenches, right down to where we live, where we contend with our anxieties and the feeling of emptiness and futility, where we sin and suffer guilt and where we must finally die. There is nothing that God in his coming does not endure with us. He understands everything. End quote. So to be ready for his coming again, never lose sight of the fact that even now he comes to you where you're at. He's a God that gets his hands dirty in your mess because he loves you. Secondly, so he comes to us where we're at. He comes, doesn't wait for us to climb the ladder, but he digs down, gets into the dirt. Secondly, to ready us for his coming, he gives us his word. He, he sends a preacher with word and, as a matter of fact, with word and sacraments here. Listen again into verse 2. The word of God came to John in the wilderness, and he went out into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word came. John went out and preached it. 
God always uses his word to prepare people for him. And through that proclamation of his word, both law telling us what we need to do, and his gospel telling us what he's done for us, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a second, the Lord brings about saving faith. He creates it. Romans 10, 17 tells us as much. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Say it again. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Unfortunately, we're prone to complicating things. Falling into the belief that if we fancy things up a bit more, make his word a little bit more relevant, preach your best life now type sermons, and most certainly not mention anything that might offend you, that that's a better way of gaining followers for Jesus. But as you see, moving on down the passage, John the Baptist didn't get that memo. Listen to what he says. I mean, so John is sent out into the wilderness. He starts preaching, right? And you would think, I mean, this is just the natural thing to do. People start coming to check him out, and you go, okay, I've got to come up with three or four sales points in order to get them to stay with me, in order to get them to be followers of this message I'm selling. But instead, John the Baptist shows himself to be the worst salesman ever because he says this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John, is this some sort of like reverse psychology thingy? What are you doing? This is your shot, man. Don't ruin it. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Winning friends. Influencing people. Not so much. John's harsh. And you know why he says the thing about Abraham that he does? You know, a bunch of Jewish people were coming out to him. And, uh, and, and the, the tendency amongst many Jewish people of the time was to say, we don't need to repent and we don't need to be baptized for repentance because we are related to Father Abraham. We're descended from him. We don't have to do that. And John, before they can even voice that complaint, says, don't you even dare say that. God can raise up from stones, children of Abraham. Now, there's a double meaning to that word stones. It's really interesting. The one is what we think of, rocks. Is it possible for God to do something with a rock that seems impossible? Yes. But there's another meaning that you may not have picked up on, and it's this. In ancient rabbinic literature, sometimes, I mean, the, the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were seen as so worthless in some of the writings that they're actually referred to as stones. They're worth no more than stones. And so it could be, in their minds, John is saying, you think you're so special, but God is able to take these unclean, sinful Gentiles here and make them into his children, and that's what he's going to do, as a matter of fact. In other words, he's leveling the playing field. John is preaching the word of what they should have done and all its thunder and lightning, but that's not all. That same voice that damns all these who come to him also says, Behold the Lamb of God about Jesus who takes the sin 
of the world away. So John is a preacher of what we call law and gospel. Bad news, good news. What we should do, what we haven't done, what God has done in our place. God uses both to ready us for his coming. If you're looking for an illustration of how this works, well, imagine going to your doctor for a checkup. You get an MRI. The results aren't good. The doctor, if he's doing his job, is not going to hold back this information merely because it might make you feel bad, even though it might most surely will make you feel bad. But she's going to share it with you for your own good. Mr. Sorensen, I'm sorry to tell you that you have cancer. Now let's imagine by that time, the doctor just happens to have a cure for cancer in pill form. So at the moment that she delivers to me the devastating news that I have cancer, she is also able to deliver to me the good news that she has the cure for my sickness. That's what God's word is like. It delivers to us both the ailment and the cure. It reveals to us our ailment and the cure. What happens often in churches is they tend to fall on one side or the other. So you have churches that are really heavy on proclaiming what you should or shouldn't do and what you should and shouldn't have done, but who basically just stay there. So the overarching message that people get from that church is do more, try harder, or else. And when this is the case, your church, when it's just that message primarily, will be filled to the brim with arrogant Pharisees and hypocrites. It's a guarantee. Because they'll never feel comfortable enough to confess their sin. They'll never feel comfortable enough to be real about their struggles. They'll never know if there's really forgiveness. They're always going to feel like people are judging them. So that's what happens in churches that only talk about what you should or shouldn't do. But then there's the opposite problem of churches that only emphasize mercy without ever really ever talking about God's law. And in this scenario, sin is not talked about and almost anything is tolerated. The message in these places is God loves you just the way you are. But listen, if that was true, that God loves you just the way you are, why on earth did his son have to suffer a bloody death on the cross? God loves you just the way you are and also this add-on of a bloody death. Makes no sense. No, no, here's the deal. David Pallison gets it right. God doesn't love you just the way you are. God loves you just the way Jesus is. Jesus has to be sacrificed for the atonement of your sins. Like, he has to be there. So your sin is not something that God just winks, winks at. He doesn't just like, well, you know, what are you going to do? No one's perfect. No. It means blood. It means death. It means sacrifice. It means a lamb of God who sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. Sin is a big deal, in other words. So it's a both-and kind of thing. It's law and gospel. And so the crowds ask John, what shall we do then? They've been baptized. They've been forgiven. What should we do now? <laughs> John says, start treating your neighbor better. Whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise and tax collectors came baptized and they said teacher what shall we do and he said collect no more than you are authorized to do so stop ripping people off then the soldiers what shall we do 
Well, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. So, to prepare us for his coming, God comes to us where we're at. And he preaches to us his word of law and gospel. He tells us our problem, but he also shows us the cure in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just end there. Most significantly, in order, in order to prepare us for his coming, God will do everything necessary to ensure that we're ready. Our text says, the reason John came preaching and teaching, baptizing folks, was so that they would ultimately, quote, have their sins forgiven. And the truth still stands today, that if one would really be ready to meet God at his arrival, they must be completely cleansed of all their sin. And the good news of Advent, of God's incarnation, is that he has done everything necessary in Christ to cleanse us of all sin. If there's one thing that I personally love about this season, it's that I'm constantly reminded that Jesus didn't just have to die for me. He did. He had to die for my sins. But more importantly, or just as important, I should say, he had to live for me. You realize every second of Jesus' life is in substitution for you. Every breath he takes is in substitution for you. He's living the perfect life that you have never lived and never could live and never will live. He's doing everything as a substitute for you. From life's first cry to final breath. And so you get a little further down in the text this morning and we see such a clear example of this. Or I should say this evening. John is baptizing people just like you and I, so that they might be cleansed of their sin. But because they're just like you and I, here's the problem. Their repentance will not stick like it should. Here's the deal with every single one of those people that go down into those waters of baptism. They go down there sincerely saying, I am now going to change my life. I'm turning away from all that has hindered me. And so they walk down to the waters, and I believe that they are sincere. And they say to themselves, and they say to God, and they say to John, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm giving up the drinking. I'm giving up the drugs. I'm giving up the bad potty mouth. I'm giving up all the things that I know I shouldn't do, and I'm going to be different now. They go down the water, and they hear they're forgiven, and they walk out, and they're confident that they're going to do it. They're going to crush it now. They even feel different. Then real life hits. I don't know about where your backgrounds are. I don't know what, if you grew up in church or not. I didn't always grow up in church, but I started going to youth group as a teenager. And, um, and at this youth group, we used to go to this Bible camp every year in the mountains near my house called Alpine. And it was, I mean, a kind of typical Bible camp. You know, you'd have the first day. It was fun, you know, great music, loud music, and uh, lots of games and stuff. And then the second night, the second night we were there, it was just the weekend. The second night, there was a different tone. And the preacher would come out, and he would give a, a really, really powerful message. 
and he would give an invitation for everybody to come down to the front to pray with him, to ask for the forgiveness of their sins and for Jesus to come into their life or to come into their heart was the words that he would use. And almost everybody, I mean, he would, you know, give the invitation. Almost everybody would come down and they'd pray the prayer and they'd ask for forgiveness. And I'm telling you, that night afterwards, we'd gather as a youth group and it was like, it was amazing. Like everybody's guards and defenses were dropped down and people would cry and apologize to each other and ask for forgiveness from one another. And it was a beautiful thing. And then I can remember, I can remember so often, so many of us on the way back down in the big, nasty church van that we used to have, on the way back down the mountain, the defenses start to come up. And the reality of life starts to hit us. We're going to go back into our different groups at school. We're not going to be together like we feel right now. We're going to be tempted to do the things that we did before. And... The fact is, when I think about all of my friends and I at youth group, we had to go back to that altar every year because it just didn't seem much would change. The reason I tell you this is because my repentance stunk. My repentance was not nearly as sincere as it needed to be, and yet I felt it was at the time. And I imagine so many of these people, these tax collectors and these sinners and these, these military guys, I imagine them being just as sincere or more than I was going down. And yet they fall back in. Well, what do you do then? Does that mean... That I wasn't really saved? Does that mean that these people weren't really saved? Does that mean that these people that were baptized for repentance weren't really saved? Well, let me say this. If it was all based on their ability to stick it real good with their repentance, then I would say yes, they wouldn't be saved. And neither would you, you and I. So listen to what I have to tell you. At those times... It does us well not just to look at the text where John says to repent. But we need to look at the end. Where we're told that Jesus was baptized for repentance as well. Now you say, why on earth was Jesus baptized? He was perfect. Never sinned. As a matter of fact, other gospels show John when Jesus comes up for baptism going, why are you here? You don't need to be here. You don't, as a matter of fact, this is bad news. Like, if you need to repent of anything, we're all in trouble. He doesn't need to repent of anything. Then what's he doing there? Listen to what Jesus says. I must. This is what he says in the other Gospels. I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. For who? For you. For me. Here's the picture I want you to think about when you think about this baptism. This, this, what John is doing and what Jesus is doing. All these sinners go down to the water. Or in my case, all these sinners went down to the altar. Dirty. Came out clean. Jesus goes down into the waters clean. And comes out dirty with the sins of the world. In substitution for all of us. 
Jesus needs to repent on your behalf. And here's why it matters. There's going to be times where you wonder if you're really ready enough to meet Jesus. I promise. I mean, if he came again, would you be ready enough? Maybe a besetting sin enslaves you or has you down. Will you really, really, really be ready enough? When that time comes, the proper answer is no. In and of myself, I am not ready enough. But he is. And this text tells me he's fulfilled all righteousness on my behalf. So he'll make me ready. Or let me close with a word from Luther that illustrates this perfectly. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he has promised me where he is, there I shall be also. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our hope is ultimately not based on our enoughness. Because that would surely lead to pain and condemnation. No. Our enoughness is found in you, Jesus. You've repented on our behalf. You've died on our behalf. You've risen again on our behalf. All of it is substitution. So help us, give us hearts that embrace it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.